Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we've seen Babylon. Against yes. my will. Uh, Aren't you glad you saw it now, though? I, well, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I have seen it. Uh-huh. It had to happen eventually, didn't it? <laughs> we put it off. I mean, I was trying, like, fucking hell not to go, and then I agreed to go, and then you cancelled. It was just, like, godsend for me. I got to stay in bed and do anything else. But we've seen it today. Um, I'm very glad I saw it. Yeah, well, it, so it's like glad you've seen it and did you enjoy it, right? These are two different questions. I did enjoy it, and I think, uh, I mean, let's be clear, right? It's not a great masterpiece of the cinema. It's not a good film. We'll have lots to talk about. But actually, I very much enjoyed it. I, I didn't look at my watch once. I wasn't bored for a minute. I agree uh, with all this. It's three hours and eight minutes long, and it keeps your attention. And that in itself is a really considerable achievement. I mostly agree with that. Um, I, I don't think I enjoyed it as much as you did, although I, but it won me over. Mm. So, so the film is about um, Hollywood in the late 20s and early 30s, the period when sound was coming in, um, Singing in the Rain, which is about that, is referenced a lot. Mm. I mean, it sort of it plays those scenes in a, in a sense, and then it literally plays those scenes. I know. A little later so, on. To, to pick yeah. an issue, not, not with you, but... Uh, Singing in the Rain is the one reference that all friends keep commenting on. And actually, you know, it's one of many yeah. references, right? And and I think it's a, it's, you know, I'll be really judgy and uh, easily hated, but I think, you know, it's the one reference that people have at their disposal, so they reference it. I think but, there's that, know, yeah. But I there's mean, also, it's, I think it's, it feels like the one reference that David Chazelle writer-director of this, I should say, has mostly at his disposal. It's the one he insists upon. I don't know. The whole Margot Robbie character is clearly based on Clara Bow, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I mean, you know, an imagined retelling. You have Jack Gilbert. You have, you know, Marion Davis and William Randolph Hearst. And, you know, sometimes their names are used. Sometimes their names are not used. So Irving Thalberg gets used. You know, uh, uh, Clara Bow becomes... Fitzroy, or yeah, you think Leroy? Or Leroy, so you know, Nelly, but but Nelly it's Leroy. Ellie Leroy, but so it's drawing on all of these Hollywood legends uh, in a not very historical way, which again, kind of film nerds have really picked up on. Oh, it wasn't really like that. It wasn't yeah, really like. Yeah. I mean, please, right? Like, well, of, I was know. I was prepared to sort of because I'm not a bit. I'm not crazy. It's not a about, fucking documentary. Well, this is. It. So I'm not like a crazy knowledgeable historian about about you know early Hollywood and, and this golden age of Hollywood and all that. Um I, I'm just not and and it's something that I could know more about. It's not something that I'm ignorant of either, but I don't have a very thorough uh, sort of sort of knowledge of it. And a lot a lot of our friends do and the point is the conversation they having seen it already has been going on on Facebook mm. for one. They've been talking about this, that and the other. So I was prepared for it to be sort of quote unquote wrong. I mean one of the points that came up which I thought was interesting, which I think Lawrence said, was that it's already earned this reputation for the debauchery that it depicts. It's an 18-rated film in this country, um, and the film begins with this kind of, it must be half an hour or so, mm. scene of a party where, you know, you see public sex going, drugs, drink, all the, you know, everything you would imagine. Yes, I love um, it. But it's kind of, it's trying, it's selling that kind of, that, that portrait of Hollywood for a long time early on. And Lawrence said, you know, what people don't, what, what people who like this kind of image don't give any credence to or respect to 
is the idea that the reason cinema became the dominant media form, art form of the 20th century is because it was an industry and a business that took itself very seriously and not took itself very seriously, but um, people worked harder and they were talented and it churned out movies. It was a job, you know, and it wasn't just the parties and the craziness. That, you know, and if it was like that all the time, it wouldn't have been as big well, as it was. Well, I, 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 I agree and I don't agree. Yeah. Right. So I think the film tries to make this distinction between, you know, the period of the late 20s, you know, and then the coming of sound. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we basically see two orgies. One which is fun and jazz and kind of innocent. I mean, there's drugs and people are running around naked, but it's kind of joyful, right? And the other one, which reminded me a little bit of Nightmare Alley, right? (laughs) Yeah, Mm. with what was the name of the guy who gets chained up and is... Oh, the geek. The geek, right. And I I do think that, um, you know, the film industry is, was based on... Uh, uh, you know, an economy that surrounded it of sex and liquor and drugs. It's a famous fact. Mm. I mean, a lot of famous movie stars became drug addicts and died of overdoses in the 1920s, right? Mm. So, you know, so that kind of world was always associated uh, with Hollywood. And I think what the film tries to show is that as soon as sound came in, it becomes formalized as an industry censorship clams down and you know that sex drug Mm. organized crime thing goes underground and becomes harsher Mm. yeah and more crude and cruel and brutal Mm. right uh and i think that's the function of those two scenes kind of you know in the film so of course it wouldn't have succeeded if it was just amateurs It, it was you know kind of one of the biggest industries in America for a while, and it was organized as such. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't founded on all sure. of those things. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think from the period, I mean, MGM kind of, when was it founded? In 1926, right? So, you know, but the, the period kind of all before that, it was like the Wild West, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, so so it became formalized. It became organized. Mm. You know, it began to be run as a factory system. But that didn't happen overnight. One of the things that it implies was was a difference for the change, or at least the way it's portrayed here, is that when sound comes in, it becomes harder to make movies mm. because you've got to shut the fuck up. And that you know, we, we see them making their first sound picture, having a go at it, and they are feeding feeding through all these mistakes and all of these issues. You know, so they put the camera inside a soundproof box mm. and it gets super hot and the mm. guy faints and. Any little noise, you've got to stand right under the mic. And we've, again, we've seen some of this before in Singing in the Rain in particular, which is a reference point. But, um, you yeah, know, I think it plays it quite well. But, you know, like, before that, we've seen them making silent movies. And it's it, pretty much the party that began in the house kind of continues on the set. Mm. It's crazy. And people are making noise all the way through, improvising and all the rest of and it. And having fun. Having fun, right? So that's one of the differences that I think it... One of the ways it draws that distinction, movies got harder to make and you had to take it more seriously once the sound came in. And it became a more serious business, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, what I was saying is that I was prepared, you know, from the Facebook conversation, all the criticism and the conversation that's been happening about it previous to me saying it, I was prepared for a terrible time. And also because... So Damien Chazelle kind of burst onto the scene with Whiplash, which was this famous... It was one of the scripts that was on the blacklist, which is this famous, um, or maybe infamous... Um, list of Hollywood's best unproduced scripts mm. that's been um, it kind of gets updated every year and it goes around and that was one of them I think 
um, and it eventually got made. He wrote and directed it, and it was terrific. I mean, there's there's really the, there are flaws in that film, but there's great atmosphere and, and great use of music, which is one of the things I think we see here. I couldn't make it through La La Land. I couldn't I make it La through La the Land. first number of La La Land. I, I saw La La Land four times. I I was so upset by the response to it because I thought there was a real misogynist, anti-feminine edge to a lot of the discussions of the film. Mm. Um, I also don't think it's a great masterpiece of the cinema, La La Land, but I did think it was a wonderful film. And I thought it had a, a moment, well, several moments, you know, that in a way have already become iconic, that are used synonymously with Hollywood movies themselves. Mm. And the two moments are, you know, the dancing in the Hollywood Hills, yeah, which I love, and the moment where, you know, they they meet in the observatory and, uh, how do you call those shadow silhouettes? Yeah, begin kind of dancing amongst the stars. Mm. I thought that was kind of, you know, conceptually wonderful, and I loved it. Yeah. And it was a very successful film, and it won Oscars. Yeah. Um, it almost won Best Picture, but then Moonlight stole it. Mm. And then we saw First Man together and talked about it on the podcast, and I was essentially very underwhelmed by that film. Yes. Um, you I liked have... it a lot more than I did. I did. And because this film is so long, and because it's been such a vast flop, it cost $80 million or so, and it's made 20 or $30 million. Yeah, I'm going to have to sit through this, essentially, with my attitude. Well, you know... And I thought the start was abysmal. I thought everything at the party, I thought it was abysmal. I didn't like how it was... Sh- One thing that we'd said in, in when we'd seen the trailers, which we didn't agree on, but I think we agreed on this, I said it looks ugly. Actually, I want to... Com- well, let's talk about that. Yeah. Because I think... So, so I loved all of that uh, party mm-hmm. extended sequence... Though, it must be said, he does not have an eye. You know, so the images, uh, you're trying to make this orgy and this excitement. And if you think of the party sequences in The Great Gatsby, mm. right, which I think are beautiful and exciting and are so interesting to, to look at, this is really quite flat. And I think it's the way that he shoots, where the camera is almost always at a kind of eye level. I mean, it's often swooping and swirling. He's doing a lot of long take. Yeah. You know, that kind of Long thing. take. But actually, it's not visualized expressively. It's underlit, heavily underlit, if that is such a thing. I mean, there are points where you can hardly see what's happening. Well, that was another thing where I wondered if actually, you know, we're now at this point where movies are made for television, you know, because you get a kind of a brightness and a colorization on your television screen that, you know, unless a film is using a very good projector, it's, it is sometimes lacking in a big screen. And that's often the case in Cineworld. So I would say that's maybe the case, but also when you're watching the film on TV at home, you probably won't be watching it in a darkened room. So there's that. You know, Cinema has that advantage of darkening the room so you can only see the image. It mm. should show it off. And in this film, there are scenes set in daylight and outside and so on, which are beautiful and just nicely lit. And you see everything. And it's all in focus and everything. It's not doing that in these inside scenes. And it... And it, there are times when it edits, you get maybe three frames of a shot that's just, you know, stuck in somewhere for you to barely register before moving on or something. And it's not all being edited that quickly. It's not like a technique. It's just, it feels like a mistake almost. And I noticed those and I was, I, I found it very ugly to look at. Um, well, I wouldn't say ugly, though I do think it has a flatness, yeah. which is a huge fault 
in what is meant to be spectacle. a visual spectacle. Yeah. Right. So, however, the party ends uh, eventually, <laughs> and um, and then they go out to make movies. So our two kind of main characters, well, the three main characters, one's already this movie star uh, played by Brad Pitt, um, and the other two are Margot Robbie, who is Nelly Leroy, who basically shows up at this party and get, makes her way in and she wants well she doesn't say I want to be a star I am a star mm. already right it's just they don't notice me yet sort of thing um, and Manny Manuel who um, is Mexican although he thinks says he's Spanish at one point well he says he's Spanish because he doesn't want to be treated like a Mexican yeah exactly right so um, and that's something we should talk about as well yeah. um, but, uh, and he also wants to get into movies um, and he ends up kind of working for uh, Jack Conrad his name is the Brad Pitt character a bit so they've kind of made their way into movies overnight. Mm. And they say, show up on set tomorrow. And they're out in the desert shooting. And this is where they're shooting the silent film. And it's a crazy party. And there's loads mm. of stuff going on. Huge scenes and so on. And this is where the film eventually starts to win me over. Because what what Damien Chazelle does, and he does this more than once. But I think this is the first time he does it. Is he uses background music. And it might be a score, and sometimes it's a score, and sometimes it's you know, found music of whatever sort. Um, and he cross-cuts between where his three characters are. And he builds up and builds up and builds up. And it works really, really well. So Margot Robbie is giving her first performance at this kind of dancing in a bar. And we're going to see how she's going to do. Um, Manny is off trying to get a camera to replace the... You know, they've broken all their cameras because it's a crazy movie set. Um, and... Um, Brad Pitt is going to have to give this performance, you know, once they kind of once they get back, and when it all finally builds up, so it ends up between, being between Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt because Manny's done his job. I should say his name's Diego uh, Diego Calva plays him. Mm. Yeah, so Diego Calva's character Manny's done his job, so it's between Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt, and they're giving their performances, and we're going to see them capture their performances, and it's cross cutting between the two, and the music building and building up, and we are we going to get the light and so on. You know, we're in the magic hour of sunset and so on, and. I thought this, this, this now this has an eye, you know this is working. Mm. It maybe doesn't have the most beautiful composition that you want, mm. the most expressive composition, but it, it has a, a, such a feeling for building up the the intensity of a scene and getting to a crescendo in it. It, it has, I think it has. So in a way, I think the story is underdeveloped, the characters are underdeveloped, and there are lots of faults with them. But, but the film has a narrative propulsion that keeps you going, yeah. right? And I think it is partly through the way that it's edited, it's partly through the music, and yeah, it's partly kind of through the way that the action is always kind of managed. Um, so, you know, I wasn't bored for a second. And I thought it was doing some really interesting conceptual things because Manny is the star. Yeah, he's not the biggest star in the film, but he is the protagonist of the yeah, film. Yeah, he's our central character. The, yeah, the film begins and ends with him. And of course, you know, Hollywood is in California, right? Who really are the absent, yeah, the structural absence of kind of Hollywood cinema? It's Mexicans. I think kind of, you know, one sees them even less than black people in American cinema. Likewise, Chinese, yeah, and likewise, black people. And actually, I would say the film has kind of five lead characters, right? Uh, one is uh, the 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 Brad Pitt character based on Jack Gilbert, Manny, the Clara Bow character played by Margot Robbie, Margot Robbie, the jazz trumpeter whom I don't know if it's based on anyone, but uh, uh, the Asian character is clearly Anna Mae Wong, 
right, uh, who then had to move to Europe to have the kind of starring career that she couldn't get uh, in Hollywood. Mm. So she played supporting parts like in Shanghai Express with Malena Dietrich. Uh, but then she had like a fantastic lead role in Piccadilly here in Britain, mm. right? Although her job here, she's a cabaret singer and she does intertitles. She's not so much an actor here. No, she's not. The version that is inspired by her, clearly inspired. Yeah, but, uh, you know, you recognise all these bits because, you know, so it's clearly Anna Mae Wong and also Anna Mae Wong is clearly referencing Marlena Dietrich in Morocco, the scene where she kisses the woman Mm -hmm. in the cabaret, right? Uh, So again, it's kind of you know, making central a structuring absence of Hollywood, right? And then the same thing with the band leader, right? And You know, in that, I think, wonderful moment where he's made to put on blackface, right? So this is the Hollywood that this film is presenting. Mm. And I think, you know, very interestingly so, right? And I think, unlike Ryan Murphy's, was it called Hollywood, that terrible TV series, you know, (laughs) which kind of imagined the impossible to such an extent that it became ludicrous. In this film, it is actually kind of drawing, not accurately on history, but, uh, you know, kind of the legends or mm. the tra- the legendary traces of that history, right? To kind of do something that is both extremely critical, but also incredibly loving. Yeah, it is kind of... Yeah, by yeah. the end, it's all like just Hollywood worship, really. Well, yeah. Um, I should just quickly <laughs> well. Say, <laughs> well, well, I should just say quickly before we move on the characters that you mentioned, the um, jazz trumpeter is played by uh, Joven or Joven Adepo, mm-hmm. um, and the Chinese American character is uh, played by Li Jun Li. Yeah. Hollywood worship at the end. So the film won me over for quite a long time, and it and it didn't win me over consistently. I thought it was a, it was a film that was having moments that yes. were wonderful moments, but it did feel it felt kind of directionless at points, really. Mm. And then you get to the end. So this is kind of spoiler territory, obviously, um, where a couple of characters have died. So Brad Pitt has killed himself because his movie career has ended, essentially mm. gone down the pan. Although I wasn't quite clear on that because he got the character who goes Jack's back and I thought, oh, is that terrible film he's made? It turned out to be a great smash, but mm. didn't say that. Um, and Margot Robbie has um, it's got, herself, got herself into trouble, abandoned Manny, who has expressed his love for her and, and proposed, and yeah, disappears and then she dies, we see in a newspaper article. And we cut to some 20 years later where we're left with Manny and uh, he has a family and they visit LA, they visit um, Kinescope, the studio where he worked, one of the studios. And he is reminiscing, goes to the cinema, and he sees Sinking in the Rain. So this is where those those references to that particular film become very realised, you know, because we're seeing the things. Mm. And, and it's a film about his time, the time he spent in Hollywood. He's, he's, he's remembering it all. And then it goes into 2001 A Space Odyssey with this montage of films from past, present, and future, from his perspective. Because we see, like, Tron, Jurassic Park, The Matrix. I mean, in fairness, I was thinking the films it's picking on are of a type, you know. Well, no, I mean, they are kind of iconic moments. So, you know, there's Chandelier with the the razor in the eye. There's Méliès. There's, you know, Leaving the Factory. and They're film student films, I think. Well, they are very student films. They are kind of... You know, Science Sound Top 100. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. also IMDb Top 100. Yeah. You know, Jurassic uh, Park and The Matrix. These sure. are the kind of 
like you, like your students, uh, twenty who might be listening. I'm sorry to badmouth you, but I was the same way. You, you go there, and the films that you know and love are like Godfather, Matrix, Jurassic Park, um, Terminator Two is in there, and you know, and they're like they're very male, they're very teenage. You know, yes. you don't see a lot. You know, I mean, I don't think there was a clip from Legally Blonde, and it's funny that the clips that he includes of his own film in this kind of reminiscing montage that are supposed to express you know, the wonder of what Hollywood can be and what it can show you are not the clips of the elephant shitting on the man, for instance, which I would say is something Hollywood can show you. It's the clips of people embracing and so on. It's very down the road. It's what you would expect. I thought it was really sophomoric, stupid. And and when it, and in thinking about it as, as kind of, quote-unquote, Hollywood worship, I think it's a really dumb person's idea well, of what Hollywood worship, it's movie the magic worship. of the movies It's movie is. worship because it, it's not all Hollywood films. Okay, right? yeah, Hollywood, yeah. Um, but, but the magic of the movie sort of thing, it's a really dumb person's idea of what that is, I think. Well, not a dumb person, but maybe not a very cine-literate one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought the ending... Didn't work. I mean, I think that's a film where many things don't work, mm. right? I thought the central love affair, which is Manny's unrequited love for uh, the Margot Robbie character, it's not very well worked through. Mm. It's kind of, you know, it's not very well mapped out. Well, you know he wants her and that he's got a crush on her and that she likes him, but there's no development, there's no unfolding, there's, yeah, there's kind of, I think, very little at stake emotionally in that development, right? Mm. So I don't think that's worked out very well. It doesn't know how to end, right? Like that whole thing of going back to the studio, I mean, it doesn't need that. Yeah. But there are many things that I love. I, 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 I love Brad Pitt in it. Uh, I think he's wonderful. And he's got like really wonderful moments in it, really, mm. of both slapstick and then just kind of really quite moving moments, really. Yeah, kind of, you know, this very superficial man having a very good time and then realizing that it's not his world kind of anymore, right? I thought I thought yeah. that moment was really uh, touching. It's funny to me, actually, because maybe it's because of The Great Gatsby was on my mind as well, the Baz Luhrmann one that you've mentioned, um, which Leonardo DiCaprio started. And I was thinking... I think this is a role. I think we're kind of in agreement. And and I, I listened to our podcast on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the other day, coincidentally. Mm. And we and we talked about how great Brad Pitt was, but Leonardo DiCaprio is this other level in that film. Yeah. Um, but I was kind of thinking, you know, it, I think this is a character that Brad Pitt can play, that Leonardo DiCaprio can't somehow. It's, there's a certain hamminess to it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Which I think he is perfect for. He's very handsome. He's very at ease with his body and with his age. He's not afraid to, to make a fool of himself. And on the other hand, it's a very subtle performance, right? Like, mm. So, you know, you, you mentioned hamminess, and, you know, I think he's certainly not afraid to do a pratfall. Mm. But on the other hand, all his emotional scenes are quite underplayed and subtle, I think. Mm. You know, and, and I think work beautifully. It's a, I think it's a really great performance. Um, the scene that I think you mentioned, you're talking about, where you talk about him accepting that his career is, you know, what his career has become by this point, is where... Um, the journalist has done that interview with him after a couple of films, mm. sound films have flopped and, and then she throws him under the bus basically he says he's done mm. and he goes to see her about it and um, she gives him this very generous sort of speech about yeah your career is done but in 50 years time someone's going to dig your films out and your ghost and your angel will appear on the screen dancing with the other angels and I thought that's really beautiful it is and Gene Smart 
who plays that character does it beautifully. Again, you know, it's a performance that is like very charismatic. And on the other hand, it's really minimal. It's made up of like mm. really minimal gestures, you know, all to great effect, uh, quite sardonic. Um, have you you've seen the original Death on the Nile? Uh, I don't think we watched that one. No, um, no, we didn't. We watched Murder on the Orient Express. What a pity, because the character that Angela Lansbury plays in that, uh, Salome Otterborn, <laughs> yeah. is really Did based. I can't remember actually. Maybe I've seen it. <laughs> it's based on Eleanor Glynn, right. right? And the character that Gene Smart plays is a combination of Eleanor Glynn, who was this very sensationalist novelist, always writing about sex. Mm. Yeah, she wrote it. And what's her name? Uh, Something St. John's, who was a very famous journalist of the period who also wrote for the movie magazines. Yeah, Adela Rogers St. John's? That's right. Uh, so so the Gene Smart character is, a, is an amalgamation of those two. Possibly more that I can't. Yeah, sure. you know. Well, it also felt like a bit of a, a type as well. I think a lot of things in this film, a lot of people and a lot of scenes feel like examples of types. Yes. The, and it's kind of... It's full of cliche in a way, and I suppose this is one thing that I got my head around very early on, and I think, and again, I think this comes from all those Facebook conversations about it. I was thinking this isn't going to be the realistic thing that all the cinephile, all the all the all the all the historians want, and when it starts off with an elephant shitting on a bloke and all the shit happening at the party, I'm thinking this is a cartoon, right? And yeah. I'm fine with that, like, actually, and 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 that it's letting me. It's I, I don't. Maybe it is thinking that it's realistic or pretending to be realistic, but I wasn't imagining that it was, and mm. I that helped me enjoy it a lot more. It's a cartoon of what. Well, actually, somebody mentioned Fellini, right? Mm. And it it has kind of you know those moments, I suppose, you know, in uh, the party scene and then in the grotty, you know, underground scene. Mm. Uh, except it lacks Fellini's dreaminess you know <laughs> yeah. because uh i forget what film it is whether it's eight and a half it might be eight and a half which actually starts with an elephant yeah right uh, and of course the taviani brothers and intolerance like elephants feature heavily in that kind of yeah you yeah. know mythic uh hollywood of that period so it's kind of pertinent that it starts with an elephant yeah but the shitting sets a tone for the film yeah, yeah. um which is a welcome one Although I would say, actually, the tone that it sets is really only um, consistent for that opening movement of the party. Mm. So actually, it really calms down after that. You do still see drug-taking and violence and various things, and there's that other orgy scene that you describe where your hype ramps up. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons that I, I, I went on to start to enjoy it as well, because that all died down. It had set that tone, and then it moved on to mm. other things, having set the scene. You know mm. what I mean? One of my big problems with the film is the Margot Robbie character, right? Which, to me, is not rounded. So you're, you're given this reason, you know, why she is the way that she is. So, you know, she's her mom is in a sanitarium. You know, her dad is... Eric Roberts. I mean, you would be I depressed... No, actually, I love seeing him. I, lo I love him. But, you know, ostensibly, he's a mess of a person, so perfect to play, you know, Margot Robbie's dad, because, <laughs> you know, that's what he's meant to be, a mess of a person. Yeah. And Margot Robbie is very appealing, but sometimes the performance feels one note because of the way that it's written. 
and it's written as constantly frenzied. Yeah, she's constantly on mm. drugs, she's constantly high, she's constantly moving, she's constantly screaming or throwing things or, you know, and it gets both not really understandable, like, you know, there's no attempt in a way to um, to make a success of her life, yeah? Mm. Um, to rein herself in. She's always, like, exploding. So narratively, you're told, yeah, that her career's in the dumps and she's going to try and make herself... Yeah, more acceptable. But actually, you actually don't see her struggling with that. Yeah? You don't see yeah. her struggling with any drug dependency. You don't see her struggling uh, Yeah, emotionally. She's always high, always looking for drugs. Yeah? Uh, always self-destructive. And, and you don't know where that comes from, really. So I think it's a real problem with the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Which makes a very appealing performance because I think, you know, Margot Robbie's very appealing. But it does end up getting a bit tiresome, yeah? That kind of, yeah, it's always frenzied. Though I don't think that's her fault. But anyway, a a pity. Um, I loved also seeing Lucas Haas and, um, what's his name, who was (laughs) Spider-Man? Tobey Maguire. Yeah. It's an odd feeling to see people that you've seen since they were children all of a sudden playing middle-aged men, the features that were so cute when they were children are now kind of fleshed out and <laughs> hanging and just like middle... What happens to all of us? Yeah. Uh, you know, Toby Maguire in particular. Well, Toby Maguire, I think, gives a very brave performance, which, you know, I'm not sure he makes the best choices because, in a way, it's a visually hammy performance, right? Like, yeah. he's relishing showing the awful teeth and the, the redness, of the, the redness and... of the eyes and, you know... Uh, I'm not sure that you couldn't have had as effective a performance of somebody lizardly and cold and killer mm. without necessarily kind of going to those visual extremes. It's a very different character if he is better presented. Do you know what I mean? Like he's well, yeah. king of the drug addicts and geeks and criminals. Yeah. And yeah. So I think it's kind of important that he looks the way he does. And I think it really works. I think it works. I think it works. I think it would also have worked if he hadn't done that. Yeah. You know. Uh, but I think they're brave choices and they work. Hmm. And it's certainly very, very memorable. It'll take be a while before you forget how yeah. he looks in this film. Yeah, which sure. might not help his career much. Right? Um, but, you know, kind of, it works very effectively. So I think for me, those are also pluses in the film. To see Eric Roberts and Tobey Maguire and Lucas Haas, mm. you know, and uh, Gene Smart and, you know, kind of being... Ethan Suplee, for me, who will be less of a reference point for you, but he was in he kind of teen movies and Kevin Smith movies and things. And All right, okay. He was the, um, he was Tobey Maguire's thuggy right-hand man. All right, okay. So, you know, recognize him immediately. Ooh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it does have those. Um, Spike Jones, you mentioned, played the um, the Eric von Stroheim Stroheim takeoff. Yeah, the yeah uh, sadistic German director. Yeah, yeah. It, so it has those going on. Olivia Wilde, we noticed in the credits, and I found out that she's the the first ex-wife of Brad Pitt, who he's splitting up with at the start. And neither of us recognised her. Mm. Um, and I suggested that one of the reasons for that might be because she's basically shot from behind. Mm. You, you know, you do see her face. It's not like it's not like that. But I, it's the same problem I had with Till. In fact, is ju- it was shooting someone from an angle that I just don't get. I suppose the point of that, as it was in Till, in a way, was to move the camera around so that Brad Pitt gets his entrance. Mm. If you if you saw them both from the front, 
you know, you would see Olivia Wilde and recognise her, and but you would see Brad Pitt. But what it does is it has her get pissed off and leave, and then he turns around and you see him. And so the film kind of, for me at least, sacrifices shooting the start of that scene well in order to shoot the end of it well. Mm. You have to give him the entrance. Sure. I, I love watching Brad Pitt in this because he plays a very romantic figure. Yeah. Somebody kind of in love with movies, you know, and in love with the romance of movies and, in fact, with the idea of romance itself. So he's got about five wives in the film. They all last about a minute, right? It's like, you know, whatever his new role is or the hot new type is, that's who he goes for, right? So when, you know, East European vamps come in, you know, he marries Lila Putti or something like that. A Hungarian temperamental one. Then when talkies <laughs> come in, he marries a Broadway star who teaches him diction. Yeah, it's like you see him go from wife to wife to wife. They each last about five minutes, yeah. right? Yeah, and he's kind of cool and nonchalant and accepting until they try and kill him, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And he's so kind of cool with it, really. You know, and I, yeah, so, I mean, he he has like this real nonchalant charm in playing this hyper-romantic character, really. Mm. You know, uh, not too bright, yeah? No. Uh, And kind of up for a good time always. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think, I feel like it's a bad decision that the film ends with, or the film doesn't end, his story ends with his suicide. I felt like that's a bad decision. As I say, I was expecting that terrible film. So he's made two films that he was hoping would be wonderful, like artistic. It had to end that way. Well, so he's made the films that he was hoping would be, you know, richer than than his normal fare, um, and they die completely. And he goes to see um, one of them playing, and the audience is laughing at, at the declaration of love that's supposed to be, you know, um, the the kind of key moment. Um, and then he just for the money and to help out a friend, help out Tholberg. He takes a, just a shitty role, and it's going to be a shit film. And I'm just helping you out. That's it. That's my job now. And that's the film that it, it, the film seemed to be half suggesting would turn out to be oh, good again. And, you know, and I thought, is the film going to undercut all of that stuff about, you know, you had your career and now and it was beautiful and you'll be beautiful again in the future. But now you're done. Is it going to undercut it and go, fuck it, I'm back, bitches? It doesn't. And it ends with this self-regarding suicide. Well, I think the film makes a mistake in. Um, so it really is split in two halves. The first half is the silent period where. Everything is fun, orgies and art and fun and drink and, you know. And then the second bid, which is industrialization, factory filmmaking, underpinned by kind of a harsh brutality, the underground stuff that goes mm. around it. And I think the mis- so, so that's the structure of the film, in a way. So it needs for people's careers to end. But I think a mistake that the film makes, and I think it would have been a lot, a big hit or a bigger hit had it done so, is not to develop Manny's character or somebody like Manny, yeah, that is background in the silent period and then whose career kind of Mm. shoots up at the end. Yeah, and ended kind of, you know, on on a higher note. Because after all, a lot of the nostalgia that we feel for Hollywood is in the period that the film ends, which it's already kind of being nostalgic for something else. Mm. So to have shown that continuity of, you know, that actually in both periods, one 
freer, one more industrialized, Hollywood still made magic, really, right? But I think this present structure doesn't allow it to do that, so it has to end on a negative, on a, mm. on that down note. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know. It felt it that's, that's all. It just it felt um, it felt a little obvious, and anyway, um, it's funny you talk about the, the 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 magic of of the movies, and you sort of suggested Brad Pitt's character in particular. Sees the magic of the movies. Yes, um, it reminds me of Fedora. Oh, the Billy Wilder film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was his kind of his own response to. Um, also based on Dietrich, really. Yeah, yeah, um, and and it was his own response as well to um, Sunset Boulevard because uh-huh. um, it was it had the, all these similarities. Glorious ones and his reference in this film. Yeah, yeah. Um, because one thing I talked about when we when we saw Fedora. Which is set in you know old Hollywood movie making, is the idea that I don't. One of the things that I want to see or felt was missing in the reasons that the characters are in Hollywood is love of movies, love of art, and mm. love of that kind of thing. And you were saying that's not really what it was back then. It was it was stardom was the thing. You yeah, start like films were not art so much as they were stardom, mm. which I thought was interesting um, and certainly something I was missing here. Films are definitely art. Sure, they or are. They're, they're definitely art, and they're definitely magic. And you see it particularly with Brad Pitt's character, but also the whole crew when they get the shot uh, in front of the sunset yeah. in that in that silent movie segment. Mm. You know, and everyone cheers that they got the shot. And I suppose they're cheering that they got the shot after a long day, and they didn't know if they would get it before the light went. But it's no, a they, magic shot. Yeah, they that they're shot, celebrating. They're celebrating because they got something beautiful. Yeah, right, uh, and. Also that it costs, because in that whole sequence, you see people wounded, people going to hospital, horses dead, right? Like, so there is a real carelessness of life in the pursuit of this image, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not entirely innocent. It's not just like, yeah. But it it does have this thing of we're going to capture this beautiful thing at any cost, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyway. I don't care what people say about films. I wanted to watch it because it was about Hollywood, because it had Brad Pitt, and because it had Margot Robbie, and because the trailer, it wasn't quite a great trailer. It didn't convince it was, me. It was a terrible trailer. Yeah. And I thought this looks really boring, stupid, ugly, as I said. But all that stuff that it shows in the trailer is basically from the first half hour. Yeah. And I wanted to see it. And I'm very glad I saw it. Uh, I thought it was very entertaining. I mean, this thing that people have about the length of a film, it drives me insane because either a film is boring and you're looking at your watch mm. and it could be 90 minutes or, you know, it kind of maintains your attention like this one did, three hours, eight minutes. I didn't look at my watch once, Yeah, you know. So I think the length has nothing to do with it. And I think the film is a certain kind of achievement because it keeps you involved throughout. Now, I think conceptually, you know, there are problems with it. I think um, the characters are underdeveloped. I think Damien Chazelle better develop a more expressive visual eye than he's got at the moment, you know, because he's good on the conceptual stuff. Mm. But actually, the shots could all be much more interesting and much more expressive. However, what I also valued was this way of imagining Hollywood with all of the structural absences in relation to race now being brought back to the fore, and in fact, with a Mexican, you know, American 
as a protagonist. And mm. I thought all of that was really worth something. And actually, I have not seen it mentioned. Class in- as well is an interesting one. Margot Robbie being lower yeah. class from Jersey and, and film itself being looked upon as lower class yeah. in comparison to the higher which is Which is an explicit issue in the film. Yeah. So it's very interesting that in all these geeky discussions about whether they use the right lens or whether that camera was in <laughs> operation or, you know, whatever, really kind of important things that the film does, yeah, in relation to race and class, I've not seen mentioned at all. And I think are really important and really praiseworthy. I would say that um, the, the the geekiest of the discussions about accuracy have actually been happening with regard to Empire of Light, ah. the Sam Mendes film, which has yeah. not come out here yet. And But... It, but this film at the end in the 2001 montage, <laughs> calling it 2001. It remi- I think it has come out here and we just missed it. No, I think it's been out in London. I don't think it's been out in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Um, people have definitely seen it, but I don't know that we've missed it. Well, maybe. Anyway, when we first saw trailers for Empire of Light, I didn't realise they were trailers for a film, right? I thought they were trailers for cinema. You know how cinema will like, do its own adverts for itself? Because it's the Toby Jones character who's his projectionist in that film. Saying things like, you know, film is projected at 24 frames a second, but together it creates the illusion of movement and life emerges on the screen. Saying shit like that, right? And I'm going, yeah, this is an advert. This is just like Cinewell telling me to go see movies, right? It does that from time to time. Um, I seem to remember having this discussion with you when we were, was it at Pret at Waterloo Station waiting for yeah. Avatar to open? And you looking, because they had this huge trailer of Moving it. billboards. Yeah, this moving billboard. And you saying something like, you know, they'll have to skin me alive before I go see that film. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> but, but the thing is, before I realised this is an actual film directed by Sam Mendes, I thought this is one of these trailers for fit for cinema itself. And and then you realise, oh no, it's someone who loves cinema, who's going to make a movie about cinema and, and why he loves it so much. And this is kind of what the end of this reminded me of. All, those, all the selections of shots from the... Many, many movies that it picked to to put in montage at the end of this, I thought this could play and until it starts getting really manic. This could play as one of those come see a movie. Mm. It's Terminator Two. It's Jurassic Park. Everything is on the cinema screen. For, do you know yes. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. plays like one of those, and I thought, how how dull. Yeah. <laughs> really, really I mean, bad. the ending is a real low point. It's dreadful, film. but I still liked it very much, and I'm very glad I saw it. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm obviously more glad. That's I saw it than I expected to be because I was expecting nothing but the worst. And obviously, as I said many times on this podcast, low expectations are your best friend because they can only be exceeded. Um, So ignore all the naysayers and give it a chance at the cinema. Yeah. And the cinema that we saw it in today was pretty full. Yes. Which is not going to be what, you know, knocks the film over its production budget. Like it has (laughs) failed at the box office. But people, there is an appetite for it. People want to see it. Um, All right, so on that note, thank you very much uh, for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.